0: Just a safe space where I share personal stories from my spiritual journey. Hello, and welcome back to the Earth Keepers Podcast. This is the second episode of season two, where we're talking all about reclaiming our sacred plant partnerships. So, If you're just starting with this episode, be sure and go listen to the others after this one. You don't have to listen to the episodes in order. However, you'll find as the season continues that each one builds on the last. So here at the beginning of the season, we're focusing more on what's happened in the past to bring us to this place in our collective consciousness where we no longer have deep personal relationships with the plants in our environment. We talked last week about how plants weren't just important as food and medicine and shelter to our ancient ancestors, but they were a key part of the entire religious experience in people's lives. And in today's episode, I have an amazing guest to share with you who has dedicated her life to researching and sharing the hidden and largely suppressed stories about women's spiritual lives in ancient times. Author and researcher Max Dashu founded the Suppressed Histories Archives in 1970 to research and document global women's history. I recently read her book called Witches and Pagans, Women in European Folk Culture, 700 to 1100. And I have to tell you the kind of funny way that her book came into my life. Now, after my medicine journey with the mushrooms in November, I was sharing the experience about the encounter with my ancient ancestors with a friend, and she said, you need this book. She told me there was quite a bit of detail in the book about the Norse of Volor, the women spiritual leaders in ancient Scandinavia. So I ordered it right away. The book arrived, and I flipped through it a bit, but I set it aside because I was finishing reading something else. A week or two went by, and I took my last trip for the year to my sacred spot at Krauss Basin before the snow got too deep to reach it. And as I sat down under the trees with my pen and my notebook, the messages started to flow. Towards the end of the channeling, a very specific message came through. It said, Go read the book about your ancestors. They told me that this phase of my journey began with the ceremony, but I now must do the spirit walk where I would straddle both dimensions. An important part of the teachings were in the book, they told me. So I went home and picked the book back up and started reading. A little bit here and there for a week or so. There's just so much great info in the book that I wanted to read it slowly and really absorb it. But at the end of that week, my Wi-Fi went down. And nobody could come out to look at it for the next four days. And then the next morning, I woke up with a horrible pain in my back. So there was nothing to do but lay in bed and read for the next four days. My ancestors were not going to let me off the hook. And I'm glad they didn't. The specific chapter on the velour connected so many pieces of the puzzle for me. The things that my ancestors had been showing me that I didn't understand in the context of their customs and traditions now made perfect sense. So. I am incredibly grateful to Max for doing this research and sharing this work with the world. You'll hear her talk more about it in the interview, but when she first started on this journey in 1968, the idea that anyone could do research specifically focused on women's history was laughable. Or rather, laughable that there was anything to be found or anything of value that women had ever done in the course of human history. But Since then, she's built a collection of 15,000 slides, 30,000 digital images, and has created 150 slideshows on female cultural heritages across time in order to show the world, and especially women, how vast and important to humanity our impact has truly been. Her work highlights the Indigenous women around the world who have been passed over by the collective patriarchal histories and highlights female spheres of power in many different societies. Max is internationally known for her expertise on ancient female iconography in world archaeology, including medicine women, female shamans, witches, and witch hunts. She's working on a 15-volume series on the secret history of witches, including the book that I read, and I will, of course, link to her work in the show notes so that you can interact with her extensive body of work. Now, before we jump into this discussion with Max, let me just share that if you're feeling called into an even deeper relationship with our allies here on planet Earth, I would love to have you join me in the Earth Tenders Academy. Reclaiming our ancestral connection with this planet and the spirits of the land and learning to speak their language can bring such a richness to our day-to-day experience here on Earth. If you want to learn more about the history and the energy of the community that you live in, space for the healing of humanity and nature, remember more about your specific gifts and role with the earth, and see the true magic held in your everyday environment, I invite you to step into this portal with me and hundreds of other earth tenders from around the world. Click the link in the show notes to learn more about the Earth Tenders Academy and join our beautiful community. And now, here's my conversation with Max Dashu. Welcome, Max, to the Earth Keepers podcast. I'm so excited to have you here and have you share your research and your wisdom, um, especially about really kind of our ancient ancestors, the ancient people, and some of their connections with nature. I uh, read your book a few months ago and was, in fact, and I shared about it on on social media Some at the same because my ancient ancestors were very, very direct about reading this book and reading it in a short period of time, up to and including my Wi-Fi going down for about four days (laughs) while I was in the middle of it. So I am excited to have this conversation and and talk more about it. And as we're explaining, although we're going to talk a little bit more today about kind of the bigger picture connection of ancient people and nature, um, we are this season really kind of diving into plants and plant partnerships especially. And so. You know, I'm curious, I'm asking all of my guests this season, you know, what was some of your early memories of plants in your life?
1: Well, I grew up in the oak savanna of northern Illinois, and we were at the edge of what was left of the prairie. So vacant lots, basically, in, in terms of a small town. We were playing on this prairie, which has almost disappeared now. They have a prairie preserve. That remains like a couple acres but the rest of it has been paved over with strip malls factories and housing so those oaks we used to play in the vacant lots we called it the forest and then there were the meadows and the meadows were full of these beautiful prairie grasses interspersed with vetch which is this dark purple little flowers kind of snapdragony kind of little flowers But there was this one plant, and I still don't know what it was, what it's called, that we called ink flowers. My best friend discovered that if you took the buds and squeezed them, a purple juice would come out of them. And so what we would do is we would collect this juice and we would make fake parchment. We would take paper and dye it with watercolors and kind of crumple it up. And then we would write on it with this rather faint purple ink that we had created from the ink flowers. And there was things growing in those fields, like there was burdock, but we didn't know what it was. We just knew burrs, but we didn't know anything about the medicinal uses. We had uh, wild violets growing in some of the vacant lots, both white and purple violets. So we spent a lot of time, you know, lying on the ground, planting trees really around the plant world. And uh, of course, you know, in middle America, there's lawns and their are mowed. And, you know, my father would send us out into the heat to dig dandelions and crabgrass out <laughs> of the yard. So it was like, you know, there was this very dysfunctional relationship with plants, but there was the magical side. One of the things I'll never forget. One of these, this, this meadow that was two blocks from my house that we used to play in had economy builders was there and they had kind of like the prairie had overgrown a garden that once existed along one side of the building. And we were walking along along the edge of the building. We discovered there were peonies growing under all of this brush. And it was so magical to, to find the peonies. You know, They had these tight little bulbs, not bulbs, the buds, you know, like balls, really, that ants like to crawl around and eat the nectar off of them. And that was so magical to find underneath all of that, these beautiful flowers. I love that so
0: much. And especially the like the making of the ink and the, you know, kind of discovering the qualities of a plant. Because I think we think sometimes in our in our modern lives, like how did people figure this out? How did they figure out that this plant did this and that plant did that? And you go back to your childhood and you just think, well, that's just what you did. You found something and you experimented with it and and kind of learned what its qualities were.
1: Yeah, and this is something, another memory I have that does not have to do with plants, but the larger biosphere, is that we would find clay deposits that had little uh, stones, actually. They looked like stones, but what they were was deposits of, of yellow ochre. And so we would collect that, and we would take it on the curb, sitting outside on you know, at the edge of the street, and we would take stones, and we would pound that ochre, and then we would make a clay out of it, and we would mold it onto other stones. And this has always felt to me like something, it's sort of as children, we were rediscovering something that's very ancient in human experience, which is the use of ochre pigments and the use of clay. And we're doing this all on our own without any adult input to it. Right, right. You know, but this is something that humans have done for a very long time. And right. only later, do I discover the sacred qualities of ochre and the ways that it's been used ceremonially, not just for rock art, but, you know, Face, face painting and many other things, dying.
0: Yeah, so interesting how those ancestral traditions and memories just kind of naturally flow through us as children, especially. And like you say, something that just felt right that you just, you know, knew about, but didn't need to know <laughs> the, so, so the it's origins.
1: Like something that rises up from within you. You know, it's, it's part of an archaic consciousness that doesn't get beaten out of children until a certain point in time it does in most cases but you know because we are raised in a society where kids are supposed to sit in rows in classrooms for most of their day and do that for decades and you don't you don't come out like you went in you know there's, there's faculties that we lose because of that regimentation and that very linear objectifying method of education
0: yeah sometimes i think that the the educational system is really the, the great forgetting, right? And then we spend the rest of our lives trying to remember what it was we knew. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, switching gears just a little bit, or I guess moving forward in time is, you know, what brought you to this research? How did you, how did this come to be for you? And and how did you dive into doing, you know, some of this research that in which there's there's really very little written records um, yeah. about this, this point in time?
1: Well, I was always interested in mythology in art. So in a way, I was doing what I do now, which is scanning the cultural record. I wanted to know, and I wanted to know about more. Even as a child, I wanted to know more about than just, say, the Greeks and Romans. I fell in love with Egypt. So that was kind of like, you know, I had this starting point there. But then I went to college and, you know, patriarchy happens. You know, I had a really pressing need to understand about the oppression of women. And whether that was universal and if not, where are free women on this planet and where can I find them? You know, human societies, has it ever been different than it has been now with all of the systemic violence and and domination? So I set out to research that and, you know, there were twists and turns to it. I had an anthropology professor who said, mentioned matrilineal societies but only in order to say that it doesn't matter all male all societies are male dominated Mm -hmm. and you know have since the beginning of time and that was really the party line in a lot of circles it remains so but I just perked up my ears at the concept of matrilineal that idea that in some way structurally things would be centered around women instead of around men so that was a pointer to me I wanted to find out and so I began researching in that direction Then I had two lines of investigation that I needed to follow. One was to look at the archaeological record, and the other was to look in more recent time at indigenous societies, because I felt very strongly that cultures that were not so state-based, not class hierarchy, not as militarized, would be more likely to have egalitarianism around sex than those that that were the ones that we know, the empires that they teach us about, you know, and they go from Mesopotamia and Egypt to Greece to Rome to the British Empire to the United States. That's kind of like what I call the passing of the torch meme that we're all taught. And they never go back and tell you what happened in Mesopotamia after that, right, with the colonization in the modern era or any of that. So in the process of looking into the archaeology to see what other What evidence is there for other ways of living? Very quickly, I start coming across the ancient female figurines. And it becomes apparent that the further back in time you go, archaeologically, the stronger the female iconography is. You know, and especially the central spiritual icons of the Neolithic are these ancient female figurines. You know, and not in every part of the world, but in in many parts of the world. And that they gradually disappear. Through the process of the history of patriarchy, they gradually get driven out. And of course, we have Christianization or Islamicization, these different dynamics that happen where they are basically adjudged to be superstitious, if not evil, if not diabolical. So that sent me in a direction where I really wanted to look at non literate evidence. You know, when you look at the written record, it is scribes employed by rulers or priestly hierarchies. And there are certain interests that are encoded into their worldview, things they don't write about at all. I mean, what's happening to enslaved women in these societies? Nobody wants to say, you know, uh, you can't find out what the common woman is up to in her spiritual practices or in her daily life or what kinds of constraints she's subjected to by the society. So I felt like it was necessary to broaden the idea of Historical evidence to look at other forms of human records, such as rock art, uh, ceramic paintings, clay figurines, wooden sculptures, stone sculptures, just about anything. But, you know, even just looking at the history of weaving, the history of basket making, the symbols that are used in those, and what what kind of connections do they have to the society's philosophy? You know, it's a reflection of its relationship with the biosphere. So, this again, plants and animals come through, images of deities, even the economics of the ways they're used and who's making them. So, that's been a lot of my approach. And I think a lot of the assignment for us is to de center the interpretations that are based on assumptions of domination or systems of domination and to look more, see if we can locate the oral traditions of the common people what they have to say as well as the material records they need and what can be found in that. So it's very multi-layered. We're looking at so many different areas. It's not just history, it's archaeology, it's orature, no literature, right, is the written, but orature is the oral knowledge and, and the record of the past that's passed on, especially in indigenous societies, that can be quite accurate, that tell us things. So that's what I've been trying to do. And my approach has really been teaching with images, because for women, we have been so starved for anything positive about who we are in the world, or having heritages, having images, having ancestral uh, memory to recover, because the cultural represent the cultural record has been shown to us as wall-to-wall men with a few queens and concubines thrown in. Right. So we, we need that in order to reimagine ourselves. And what I found when I began teaching with images, I was doing slideshows starting in 1973, that there was a visceral reaction that women would have to seeing these images, which are so counter, really counter to what we're shown, but also actually informally or unconsciously forbidden. You know, you're not supposed to see the goddesses, the priestesses, the medicine women, the female warriors, you're not supposed to know about this. What's important are the kings, the dynasties, the generals, and the male scientists or philosophers. So that's been a process of excavation that's just ongoing all the time. I didn't say, oh, I'm going to start an archive, but I did know that in order order to make visible a women-centered history, that I was going to have to document it extensively because the demand for evidence was going to be there in every instance that there would be a challenge anytime you wanted to say well you know matriarchy or anytime you wanted to talk about priestesses then there were going to be voices saying oh that that never existed that's a utopian fantasy you know and you would have to provide documentation and say well actually look there's this 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 and this and nobody ever talks about that why is that you know you're going to have to show them and so showing, showing women or showing anyone the fact that the, there's much more in the world than we've ever been shown or taught about, it changes the way we look at everything. It gives possibilities. It opens up roads and forms of awareness to us that we just have been systematically denied. And I would have, every time I would do a slideshow, there would always be the same questions. Why do we not know about any of this? And just the rage also, the fact that we have been denied that knowledge. And there are many different ways that that can happen because I'm talking about how this affects women, but of course, women too. Divide and conquer is the nature of patriarchy and women appear in many ethnic forms and with many histories. So then you also have the ways that women in the African diaspora have been portrayed, Indigenous women, you know, Native North American women, the omissions and the lies and the distortions and all of these ways that the knowledge is hidden from us and so very much needed. So something I'm seeing all around increasingly, especially since in the last 15 years, I would say, is a consciousness among women of many backgrounds desire for ancestral recovery to know as authentically as we possibly can because there's no doubt that a great deal of this was destroyed but as much as we can recover it and this is where my book comes in what was the culture like what were the teachings the philosophies the symbols who were the deities what were the ceremonies like their methods of healing how did they relate to the land how did they relate to each other what about ecstatic traditions you know attaining States of consciousness that are much deeper than our normal alpha brainwave linear consciousness that we're having to operate in most of the time. And so that is something that in Witches and Pagans, I tried to do for Europe to have to recover what could be found. And at the very beginning, I thought, oh, you know, they just destroyed everything. You know, in the early 70s, I'm researching and it was really hard to find things. There was no internet. And if you looked up women in the card catalog, You would find wives, mothers, makeup, fashion, housework. You know, you'd find these things they didn't have listed. There was just literally no categories for priestess or seeress or, you know, the vast economic and technological contributions that women have made. They were simply not visible except as housework, you know, so that they were defined in a form that didn't accord them any recognition for like the biochemical technologies that women devise for preserving food in the making of, of drying and salting and pickling and the uh, smoking or the use of leavening or the creation of beer and yogurt and butter, you know, all of these things, even agriculture itself, that was not made visible. And we are left with this sort of imperial colonial patriarchal assumption that, Men are the builders, men are the planters, men do these things. And, you know, like the Shah of Iran told Ariane Falachi in an interview, you've done nothing, nothing. You've contributed nothing. Talking to women. Right. That's sort of been the implicit. I mean, this has changed to some degree. We're not all the way out of it yet. But, you know, in the university in in 1968, 69, when I, I bailed out of there, that was the party line. Is there's there's nothing to see there and it was literally a joke to talk about women's history <laughs> we're gonna find that there isn't any so it's something we have to like turn up we have to like turn over the soil and see what's under under the surface
0: yeah and i think you know you're so right about people I, women knowing now right like it's like we can feel it in our bones We are maybe having these experiences of, you know, ancestors coming to us and, you know, ways in which we uh, would have had this knowledge, there's bits and pieces maybe dropping through, but it really does feel like there is this time and, and. You know, you're right. I can't, I can't even imagine the the mountain of work it was <laughs> to go back and and compile because you really did follow and piece pull these pieces together because some of it, as you point out, is in language and how language was changed and how meanings around words were changed right. and you know some of it was connecting that then to the archaeological pieces or to the things that were written down, but were written down by perhaps the church or, you by know, biased sources. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so trying to put all these pieces together, uh, you know, was clearly a, a labor of love
1: <laughs> over the years. Yes, and of an obsession. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so I really wanted to know. And there's no way I mean, you have to read a lot, even to extract a paragraph sometimes out of that what came into the book you know, I had to read many books to just get that one paragraph, because sometimes they would just give you a little part of it. And then later on, sometimes 20 years later, I'd find a whole other thing behind that from the same source, but they simply chose not to quote the parts that were relevant to us. It was of no interest to them. Right. And so sometimes you have this progressive unfolding and you realize there's a whole other thing behind it that, you know, what looked like a little interesting shred turns out to be an entire topic. And this was really true with the Norse material, because initially the book did not have a lot about Scandinavian. I had material on the Norns and, and some other things. I had I had some information even about the Vler, the the staff women as that would translate to in English, the female shamans, essentially, trans priestesses. But in actually in the last year of writing the book, important pieces unfolded themselves. It was it was very much a serendipity the way that this information came across at the last possible moment that I began to get connected with archaeological finds I had found one or two examples of a sage staff of the ceremonial staff that these priestesses used and I found out that there was a lot of female burials that they found actually 38 examples all of them women except one with this staff buried with them and. I didn't realize until very late in the game that they were in the form of distabs. And this was like a massive revelation. It was like almost a keystone to the book because I had been talking about spinning and weaving as metaphors associated with the fates, with the fairies, with witchcraft, with women's pagan ceremony. You know, they would go to the fairy cave and they would offer skeins of unspun wool to the thighs, you know, in Portugal and various different examples like that. And then now I'm finding that I knew that the the, the ruler had a staff, a ceremonial staff, but I didn't know that the form it most often took was in the shape of a spinner's wand. And therefore, the metaphor for what they were doing was very closely associated with these Indo-European themes of the fates as spinners and weavers. And that really just was just like a whole other dimension. And, and it was fascinating, actually, to see the sage scabs. The most of them that have survived are iron because wood has disintegrated, except in a few cases. They found some examples in bogs where the tannic acid preserved the wood. But it's really interesting how this kind of research can unfold if you're tuned in, you know, in the way a book falls into your hand. And the very last night before I was going to send the final... PDF off to the printer. I had actually rendered the whole thing, and I I had it was all set to send it to them, but there was um, some issue. I can't remember. There was some computer issue, and while I was waiting for, I guess I was waiting for the PDF to render, and I picked up a book I had found in a free box in Berkeley, and it was on medieval European art. And I'm just flipping through it, waiting for the rendering to go, and. My eyes fall upon an ivory carving that's from a gospel cover. This happened a lot, like around the 8th, ninth century. They would still have pagan symbols in the little ivory gospel covers, right, of the Christian yeah. book, right? Yeah. <laughs> in the margins, and they had a color picture of an image that I already had in the book, but the image I had was such a poor quality image that I had pulled off the net, And it's just sometimes very hard to get access to these I mean, I didn't even know where it was from, right? But I found it in full color. And so hold the press. I had to stop, scan the image, do all my little Photoshop tricks, render it into a drawing and plunk it into the uh into the book manuscript and then re-render the whole thing. And it was just <laughs> literally the last possible moment. This piece, which would have been a very bad drawing, became this very detailed and rich image that. Just it it blew me away. I was I was so stoked to find that. You know, it just felt like ancestors were watching over my shoulder and saying, no, no, wait, you're not done yet. You must have this. And I hadn't (laughs) wanted to make sure you had it. (laughs) And I hadn't looked at that book. I had a stack of books I got for free and I didn't have time to look at them. And so, okay, like while this rendering, let's just look at this. It was like three in the morning, you know. And there I am till dawn doing all this, what I just told you. So Things came together really amazingly.
0: Yeah, and this chapter on the the Scandinavian uh, seers and um, you know, kind of the 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 way that they did their work was really that was that was what my ancestors wanted me to read quite specifically, and I have been working with um, Scandinavian ancient ancestors in. Journey and ceremony for a handful of years now, but I had, in the weeks before uh, your your book so magically came to me, uh, I had had a, a series of different things that had happened, including a specific medicine ceremony. But I had had a vision of a staff that then came to me. I had somebody gift me a drum that they made. I met a wolf in person in a kind of funny situation, you know, all these things had kind of happened in my waking life. And then I had this journey where all of these tools were being given back to me in a way where they were showing me, you know, these are these, these are our tools. and uh, And of course, I hadn't read the book. I didn't know <laughs> any of this. Uh, any of this history, and then I went through this process that during the process I, I understood as a very shamanic experience of, uh, you know, the dismemberment, and in, in the case of my experience, really just kind of burning me down and throwing my pile of bones on the fire. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I understood it as, well, this was a dismemberment, you know, ego dis- dissolution, you know, all of these types of things. And then I read the book, and really, I mean, there was actual archaeological references that this was how some of these burials were done and uh you know, and certainly this this piling of the bones and these you know big big fires and it just it connected so many dots for me of understanding that they wanted me to understand the bigger picture. It wasn't just you know, kind of having this experience in this life, but really understanding the lineage and what's available for us, which was Really so powerful for me and, and, you know, many, many other things for those of you who have, uh, you know, European uh, ancestor descent, I think would would find plenty of tidbits uh, of, of information in there. But if you could give us a little bit of a context, because your book specifically focuses on the years of, I think it's 700 to 1100. Yeah. You know what was happening in the European landscape in yeah, right. that period of time? Like
1: who who was conquering and what, what was happening? Right. In right. Yeah, this is a period that you know you had the fall of the Roman Empire, and then you have what they call the barbarian invasion. So there's a lot of Germanic migrations across Europe, including people coming out of Sweden into Eastern Europe and you know the Goths, for example, originate in Sweden, but they, they wind up in Ukraine all the way over to Spain right? So there's there's this period in the 400s, 500s where that's going on. And, uh, you know, the Franks coming into Gaul. There's a lot of conquest going on in that period, and it gradually settles down into feudalism. So you've got lords over the land. The common people are driven gradually into serfdom. And what's interesting about that period is that one time there was something that in English we would call the folk folkmult, which is the folk council, and that gradually is done away with it becomes much more of a hierarchical system and there are ethnic layers to this also because the gauls are being dominated by the franks and you know you can various other other forms like that but what happens is there is an alliance in this contending between many warlords kings you know really start out as military leaders right and then royal lineages grow out of that whoever comes to the top of the heap so there were a lot smaller divisions. There was no France. There was no Germany. There was no Italy, right? There's much smaller units of, of lordship over populations that are pretty diverse. There are examples like in what Aquitaine in the southwest of France. That region still up until about 700 was still speaking a Basque language, you know, and these are things a lot of people don't know. I mean, Ireland and Scotland and Wales are still speaking their languages, you know, you don't have the the national domination languages established yet. So it's much more diverse. Culture is much more local. But here's what happens is there's an alliance of church and state that grows up and the church props up whoever are the dominant warlords in return for aid in the process of Christianization. Because, you know, in 700, there's a Christian veneer over some countries, not yet Germany, not yet Eastern Europe, but, you know, they're just beginning to Christianize England. There's really just the whole cultural context is a sea of heathen culture. The holidays, the place names, you know, calendar, the festivals, you know, names that they give to the pond or the rock, whatever it is locally. And there's still all of this goddess tradition that's very much there. And so the church is going to war against this, and it's a process. They have to allow it beginning because there's just no way they can stamp it out. It took centuries, but this alliance of the secular power and the ecclesiastical power, both of which were feudal lords, you know, the church in the Middle Ages was the largest landholder in all of Europe, and they put in a policy which, in Latin, "Eius baptisatio cuius regio, he who baptizes to him the rule." So that conversion was a driving engine that justified invasion and enslavement. So the Franks do this to the Saxons and then the Saxons turn around and do this to peoples further east, like for example, the, the Wends you know, in East Germany. And there's this series of crusades against the pagans. At first, they're not being called that, but by after 1100, they start to actually call them that. You know, and this is what happened to Lithuania and Latvia and and, uh, Estonia against the Sami later on in uh, Scandinavia. But there's this imperative to stamp out the indigenous religions. When I say indigenous, I have to qualify that because these are already Indo-European-dominated cultural worlds. There are still traces like the bits of Basque around the Pyrenees and in southern France, and of course the Sami in the north. Are gradually, gradually driven back and back further and further north. If we look at the archaeology earlier on, they're much they're all the way down to the Baltic Sea. You know, there's there's a whole history to that. But this has huge consequences because it's not only political and economic, it's also a cultural displacement that is being engineered by this alliance of church and state. And of course, the consequences for women are also very severe because institutionalization of uh, canon law was bad for women. Women lose their sphere as priestess and wise woman and healer over time, gradually, not all at once. And, you know, because the Catholic church bans women in the priesthood. And this was hard going in some places in Sicily and Britannia, especially as late as 600, you still see those people trying to have female priests. And Pope Gregory is like, no, no, you can't do this. And, you know, so these are all processes, but this is something that's really important. I'm not saying that these pagan cultures were matriarchal, except maybe the Basques, but the um, at least some elements of Basque culture. It's more just that they still had female spheres of power. They were not as patriarchal as the Christian states that were backed by the church, tried to make them be. You know, And this is where you come up with the witch hunts. This is the end product of this culture war that had gone on you know, for quite a long time. Uh, I don't know if you had other questions about that. Uh, serfdom, slavery, something that people don't realize that slavery was quite res- widespread in Europe after the fall of Rome. We all know the Roman Empire had slavery, but you have the word slav, slave, slav, The word slave itself in English comes from the practice of enslaving the pagan Slavs. And it's interesting because both Christian states and Muslim states both had a policy of it's fine to enslave the unbelievers and to conquer them and make war upon them. So that, that's where that word actually comes from. And slavery goes lasts for quite a long time in medieval Europe. That's not a very well-known fact. But, you know, our real interest is, is that drilling back down and saying, okay, what is in the folk culture? How do we find that? Some of that information can be found in areas that initially I wouldn't have looked at, but, you know, the history of weaving, for example. If you go really into detail, you see all kinds of woman-centered practices of goddess traditions, you know, the fates, various forms, cultural forms that are really, really interesting. They just simply don't appear in standard histories. You have to look really in a more specialized way to turn up that juicy stuff.
0: Yeah. And, you know, it's so interesting because I think even uh, so many of those traditions got watered down, right, that like weaving would have been the skill that, that women had. But to understand that it had a lot of, you know, for lack of a better term, magical qualities imbued in it and that. Uh, Whether it was, you know, laying the thread over a stone that had certain healing abilities and then, you know, weaving that into a cloth that you would have put on somebody while they were sick, you know, and just thinking about how ingrained and how connected the people were with their environment and really and you alluded to it earlier you know how much time and how difficult it was for the church to separate people from those traditions and how and really how easily they would have been to continue you know from home to home to home without maybe anybody knowing but i did find it really interesting how many Of the things that the church really was making an effort to ban that could have really just been construed over time as women doing anything outside (laughs) you know with nature (laughs) with what like just being outside um you know could have easily as the years went by been construed as you know witchcraft and um how dangerous that would have been to have been accused of something like that. And so that over the centuries, it really, I can see how easily people would have just at some point said, it's not worth it. You know, we we, we can't continue these things. But, you know, can you talk a little bit about some of these things like the sacred wells and... Um, the sacred trees and, you know, some of some of these traditions that were really rooted in nature and that um, the church was so intent to separate people from.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, what you were saying about the connection to nature and being outdoors as as a forbidden, especially for women in the witch trials, they actually there were actual trials where the man would be testifying against the woman and saying, well, they were they were out there in the woods. What could they have been doing out there? There could be no legitimate purpose for it, but that has as a background, you have both canon law that's pounded out by bishops' councils. We're talking about the 500, 600, 700, 800, 900s, you know, that, that early end of the Middle Ages, and there's a huge amount of the resolutions that they passed as canon law that forbade going to springs, bringing lights to springs, making offerings at Stone's going into the forest and and sometimes the diviners were quote unquote hiding in the forest like they would not be in the village but people would know to go to a certain place and that would be where they could consult somebody who might do things like binding herbs onto their arms you know so that healing was not only a pharmacological operation where you're giving medicines internally or externally as poultices or whatever but also the magical use of herbs the ceremonial use really of herbs that having you know binding herbs i have a a picture from england of a witch binding herbs onto a woman's arm so there's not really any medical strictly medical purpose that you can see that with but it's more of an energetic thing that this is part of a ceremony that speaks to the body mind not just to the medical body but to a consciousness in the body you know this is like animacy what Robin Wall Kimmerer calls animacy, this idea that everything is vital and infused with consciousness and that these forms of consciousness and energies can interact in certain ways. So one of the canon law compendiums, in addition to the actual written law, they had a strategy for depaganizing the countryside. And it was called penitential books, or sometimes you'll see them called confessional manuals. And there were a lot of these written between 500 and about 1100. And it was a guide to the priest. This is what people are likely to believe. And this is what you better watch out for and see if you can stamp out. And so some of those canon law rules that I was describing make their way into that. But they're, they become really useful for us as a way to trace back what were people believing and doing. Right. right. And so one of the other discoveries in writing my book and this also came toward the end. is I found a Latin penitential written in France in the 800s by a guy named Halit Gar of Complet. And it has a line in it that is pretty much congruent with what the canon lawyers and the scoldings of the bishop, you know, they're preaching sermons to people and saying, don't do this. This is wrong. This is devil worship. This is bad. So he says, so men are so blind that they bring their offerings to earth fast stone. And to trees and to wellsprings. And then the whole he goes off into a whole denunciation about how stupid this is, and you know, believing that these objects could do anything, you know, to help people. They're dead, they're objects, they're just trees, they're just stones, they have no no vital force behind them. So a couple hundred years after he wrote this, this Anglo-Saxon translator renders this into old English. He reproduces the same line, but he adds. A clause in it, swa tacheth, Ask the witches teach, and so what he's saying is that the practice of bringing reverence to earth, the stones sunk into the ground, whether they're megaliths or whether they're part of the natural landscape, and making offerings to trees and to fountains, is the spiritual practice that the witches were teaching. It's telling us that the witches were seen as spiritual teachers, and it's saying the teachings that they bring have to do with reverence for earth. So that's a rather unusual admission because most of the time, you know, the devil teaches them these things and they believe these superstitions and how wrong that is. And it offends the living God, blah, 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 you know? So there's a few places where they allow a bit of the truth to break through the doctrinal boilerplate. Right. (laughs) And it's always great when you find those
0: Right. And, and in theory, probably even just calling them witches is really saying that like these were women, uh, most likely, and that the women were teaching the people and the and the other women. And I, I thought it was interesting, too. I think there was one of one of the doctrines somewhere said something to the effect of even if you will, you know, you're injured or you're sick and you're going to die <laughs> and a, God's will. Yeah and uh, and uh you know a healer could heal you you're not to go to the healer you know i mean that's pretty but it's pretty wrong <laughs> Yeah and you know another thing i hadn't i hadn't read about anywhere else and and wasn't familiar with was this tradition of i think it was called waking the well where the women would go out in the middle of the night to really consult with i assume the spirits of the water and right. I, you know, well, you
1: there's, have there's so for that. that 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 one about consulting the spirits of the water is one very specific instance. And it's actually in an epic about Anglo-Saxons in the 11th century. But the guy is visiting the house and he notices the women go out at night and they go down to the water and they begin making a ceremony and they ask questions and they listen for answers from the spirit of the well. Mm. so that's one form of waking the well and this word waking doesn't mean you're waking up the well it means you wake you stay up all night beside the the well it's a vision quest it's a source it's it's a seeking after illumination you know of placing yourself and very often in silence in a sacred place it could be sitting out on a stone you know this is where the, the whole the scandinavian concept of utisetta is so brilliant because this is something Europeans shared with Native North North Americans, for example. The idea that you're going out on the land and then you're making your invocations, your prayers, but then there's a point in which you wait for the knowledge to come through, for the revelation to happen. And that's what waking the well was. You know, it could involve chanting, it could involve ritual silence. There's a piece from the Habba I quote from in there somewhere, and it says, "Tis time to sit on the sage's chair," and then it says, "I, I forget exactly how it goes." I sat and thought, but you know, it's it, it's it's like creating that opening with intention. When right. You go there, and, and you have to. There's got to be some ceremonial way of setting the intention, and then you have to wait the revelation to come through. There's a piece that I. I want to mention because I know you're interested in the plants, which is some of the very interesting Anglo-Saxon witch names. One of them is Libestre, and so like we you know we have the word Webster. This stre ending in Anglo-Saxon is a feminine ending, for starters. But what's at the front of that word is this word lib, l y b, and it's related to the word for life. And we have forms of this word in German. Norwegian, Icelandic, English, and they all take slightly different forms. So in Norwegian, for example, lyfja is especially applied to herbs and especially magical use of herbs, even sometimes incantations over herbs. But it's very interesting because you could actually translate Old English libistre as medicine woman, because this word lib is also used for amulet. It's used for herbs. It's used for medicine. And it's used for life, so that's a really important key concept. And then there's another one which is called wyrgestra. So Wirt, like you will sometimes see this word motherwort, wort meaning herb, and so in Old English they spell it often w y r t, but it means plant. So that's part of the word, and the other part is gestra. And this relates in Scandinavian you have this word galdor, which means to chant, a charm, to sing a magical incantation. So Wirtgelstra means a woman who chants over herbs. And those are really precious pieces. You know, we don't have a lot about them. We just know that those words are there. And in the case of Libestra, there are examples of it in the Alps, in the German-speaking parts of the Alps, where they still have a relative to Lib, which is Lupa. And there are various pagan, magical uh, healing significations attached to that concept. So we're seeing basically, you could call this a cultural substratum of pagan healing medicine underneath all these layers of Christianity and, you know, male doctors and everything like that placed over on top of it. Because the healing that the common people were doing in Europe is a lot more similar to the rest of the planet as far as, you know, what you could call shamanic healing, where you're using touch, you're using elements like maybe rubbing stones on the person's body, you're using ritual bathing, incantation, maybe wands, ceremonial objects, things that are imbued with life force. Like for example, the Scots had traditions of doing healings that involved south running water. You would gather this south running water or else they would gather water from the crest of nine waves. So there are witch trials in Orkney in in the far Northern islands of Scotland of women who had collected the crest of nine waves and they would use that water to bathe the patient ceremonially. So there was like an animistic dimension to the kinds of healing they would do. And one woman worked with three stones and so she would put those stones in contact with the person's body. Maybe she would rub them, uh, various things. And this is something you see in Borneo. You see it all over the world. This is what we have in common in our ancestral European traditions to all these other African, Pacifica, different ways of knowing and healing. And uh, sometimes the the witch would tell the person she was healing that part of their healing was something they had to do. Like she would ask them to circumambulate a certain lake three times. But you have to walk around the lake this is part of your healing and you know that everything else she does will take if you participate in it with your intention you know because in Western medicine we, ha- we have such a predisposition to authority and the idea that the doctor gives you the drug or the doctor does something to your body and that's the treatment and there's no involvement of body mind in it. there's no involvement of consciousness in it but in the old uh, folk culture, chanting over a person was really important and in Romania she might take a cord so this is back to that working with fibers again and she might knot the cord so she's binding the disease and, and then there this, this particular case I read about she's saying I do not knot the cord but I knot the disease in the heart I do not knot the cord but I knot Bind, you know, It's basically a binding spell, and she would go through naming different parts of the body that she was thereby freeing from these kinds of disease. And then they would take these cords, and they would dispose of them in nature in some way that the natural world would neutralize and release those caught energies. So there's an example of an inquisitor in southern France in the 1200s that refers to people placing knotted thongs into the hollows of trees. And there's just a huge amount of possible ceremonies that could be undertaken, you know, for whatever purpose.
0: Yeah. And it's so interesting because lacking any connection to a specific lineage, right? I think a lot of us say, you know, well, where do I begin or what how, you know, how do we recreate these things? And I think what we really see through this example is that obviously if you had a lineage and you had a teacher and you had, you know, this these ceremonies passed down to you, then then you would have repeated them because that would have been the tradition that that you were taught. But that when you look at it, even though there's similarities, maybe kind of across continents and around the world. They all had their special spin or their unique twist sure. or their whatever. And I, and it goes back really to what you're saying about the intention and the intention of the healer and the intention of the person being healed and the intention of the ceremony and and then working with these natural elements and ultimately just being creative in thinking through, right? Can we put the disease in the knot and then dispose of the knot, you know? And I think these are things that certainly I share regularly on this podcast and with, you know, st- students in my program as well, is like, how can you think of to do this work and then just do it that way? It will work. And I think that shows like the magic and the possibility that's held in our intentions of, you know, what what does this represent? How do you do this? Um, how can we accomplish something that, that we want to accomplish? And you see that in these indigenous societies and, and in these different healing traditions, um, the creativity in resolving the issue. And so it's, it's just wonderful to see that.
1: Yeah, and, and there's, there's an issue because, you know, we who live in cultural exile, maybe for many, many, many generations, we are looking for an authentic place to stand. You know, and this is something you realize the loss very greatly when you see people who have an entire body of tradition that was transmitted to them. And we can't fool ourselves. Colonialism has cut into that for many people. Yes. uh, You know, of Native heritage in that way as well. But it's this idea of, you know, a body of songs, a body of stories, of knowledge about plants, about midwifery, healing, whatever it may be. And so what we're basically about now those of us who have been on this path is how to reweave the ripped web of culture. You know, we have to recreate it, and we have a lot of insight that can be gained from looking at other traditions and then seeing the similarities that you know we can find in our own ancestral ways, and things that also are nothing like what what you know we have found historically, but just what we have discovered in our own experience. You know, and especially though. Under guidance of nature, you know, and and that's a matriarchal teacher. Peggy Sande likes to quote the menangkabau people in Sumatra, and one of their guiding principles is growth in nature is our teacher. You know, the, the analogies of the way things happen in nature, or even just, you know, in our very fraught and stressful and anxious situation in in the crisis that we're all living through, the world crisis, to be able to I forgot what I was going to say there. Uh, I was 10, stops, 10 steps ahead of myself, but to to be able to re equilibrate that like oh, the Japanese have this concept of forest bathing, you know, that we have to be able to release. We have to learn to release the, the cortisol bath we're all living through, you know, the stressors of COVID or you name it, the economics, the political horrors that are going on now. And we have to, in order to be able to be effective, in putting the world to rights, we have to renew ourselves. And, you know, whether that's lying on a stone in the mountains, whether that's ritually immersing in a stream, even though it may be February and quite cold. You know, I've done this in in the mountains. It's like, you know, it makes your bones ache. You don't stay in long. It's just like that one shot and you're out, you know. But it is rejuvenating. (laughs) It's rejuvenating and it's transformative, especially when you do it with intention. Before you go in that water, you're thinking, okay, I'm going to leave behind all of this affliction that I'm carrying. I'm going to drop those stones and I'm going to come out renewed. So intention is always a really huge part of it, but it's finding ways to do these things, number one, and number two, and this goes back to intention, to actually persist in carrying them out. (laughs) Right. But I, I think we really suffer from a lack of faith, those of us who have been uh, afflicted by Western Civ, you know, where there's all this doubt that's been inculcated that any of this can really work. I think this is a real obstacle to a lot of people who are seeking healing or, or seeking a transformation of spirit is that, well, you know, how do I know this is really going to do anything? Right. You know, because there's it's just like that the doubt is so deep seated. It's so culturally saturated. You know, we're stained with it. And, and that's something we have to periodically remove, not only our intention, but our faith that it makes a difference, you know, and to seek that out, go back out to the land and get sane again, you know, outside, as far out of the man-made world as you can manage, you know. Yeah, it's so
0: true. And I think, I mean, you're touching on this this idea of uh, that I have around, where have we gotten to? Um, what has you know, although it maybe took hundreds or more (laughs) years to remove this from people and from their consciousness and from their memories, um, now that we are so far removed on the other side that we don't even know what we're missing in many cases, you know, what when you look around, what do you see we as a culture, we as a community have lost? in that disconnection
1: yeah and that that's a really that's a really big issue i think for a lot of people is they feel this terrible lack and they just they don't feel like they're capable of reconfiguring past that you know and this is back again to faith not in the sense of believing in some entity in, in a theistic sense but more just that this is your life and what are you going to make of it and you know how do you renew how do you how do you throw off the trauma and the pain and refresh again, it's just like it's, it's that constantly begin again, begin again, but having ways to do that, and really undertaking to do them. Yeah.
0: Do you have any specific suggestions? I mean, you did just say get as far away from yeah. <laughs> out into nature as possible, but you know what? What kinds of things specifically do you think you know are useful for people um, living in this modern culture as we do, and and kind of trying to integrate and find ways back to some of those ancestral yeah. ways of being?
1: For me, you know, I can't. I don't drive, so I can't drive up to the Sierras and lie on a rock up there, which would be my first line of defense, you know, being able to plunge into some mountain lake and swim around in there or, you know, just sit out, you know, do utiseta out there in in nature and just really allow everything toxic to flow out of me and then to be refilled. You know, so that's there's that. But you know, I'm an urban dweller. I don't have a fortune to live out in the land. So uh, I go for walks here. I walk to the nearest park that I can get to, you know, sometimes I can get somebody to drive me to the bay. I like to sit out on the stones on the bay and chant. I like to do a uh, sacred dance and incantation, even in your house, even if you can't get anywhere, you know, the access to the ecstatic is there. But again, the intention is necessary. You have to drop all the conditioning. that says, you know, what do I look like? This is foolish. This is what, you know, this isn't going to really make any difference and really breath. Vibration in the chest, incantation, and combining that with intention. You know, so like even chanting mantras, you know, if you're into uh, the, the goddesses, there might be certain invocations that you might want to chant, but doing them with a really deep degree of energetic investment, knowing that this is going to change the tissues of your body, knowing that this is going to change the, the hormonal stress baths that we, we mostly live in. To uh, lie on the ground. I know a African American healer, Queen Hollins, who came up. I mean, she was really deeply inspired in this. But she was working with women who had been traumatized in terrible ways, and she actually dug a, gra- a hole in the ground, a space in the ground, covering them up with earth. Mm. You know, to lie in the earth. Now, you know, you can't necessarily do this, depending how far north you are, of how high up in the mountains you are, might be too cold, but you know, like in the summer, you can bury yourself in sand right. on a beach. if You have access to one. It's just like really direct contact with Mother Earth is really powerful. But even beyond that, if you have a bathtub, you can fill it up with Epsom salts and put some lavender oil or whatever transformative oils are in there and go in there and just really, you know, do that ceremony as a way of immersion and chant in there because baths are great places for chanting. the resonance of it right because there's a way in which the combination of the breath and the vibration and then the intention of the sacred names that you're chanting you know whatever whatever prayers or invocations that you're singing or even just lamentation and making sounds and then the sounds that can come out of your throat are incredible and the deeper you go into this area between your throat and your lungs you know the more you can release as far as you know we're carrying a lot around a lot of grief Mm -hmm. a lot of rage too but it's just it has to have some place to go you don't want to get it all knotted up in your body you want it to come out in a transformative way and so music is a way of doing that and for some people art is a way of doing that but i think incantation and movement are very powerful
0: yeah, it's so true and and I'm I'm a huge fan of toning in particular and especially yes. out on the land and with the land and and it's really remarkable to uh you know to really see the the trees and the plants and the soil, you know, kind of receive that and also just I mean so so healing for for our own bodies but but I also, you know, think about how you're right about kind of releasing that and and the earth can accept and receive that and transmute that for us in a way that nothing else can and i just i am always forever amazed at how we have everything we need you know to be healthy and happy in our in our environment and um but you're right about just taking the time and the um again the intention and to do something in a ceremonial way instead of you know just adding it as another task on your on your to-do list exactly
1: Yeah, and and it's like, I will I give one caveat, because a lot of people don't have a space place, safe space where they can chant like that, or, or lament like that, because they don't have privacy, they have apartments right next door to them with shared walls. And, you know, it's just like, it's it, they can't let go because the kind of space and comfort you need, they don't, they don't have that in their space. That's a real problem. You know, those are real issues. But I think what you said there about the releasing into nature, there's this saying, I think it's a, either a Taoist or a Chinese Buddhist saying, is that they talk about when you're doing this release, then it resolves into its original nature. It's like you're letting off the toxins, but they don't remain toxic because they are deconstituted from the form of trauma. And then they're just energy again. Right. You know? And that's what Mother Earth does.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And really, I mean, back to what we were saying even about, about waking the well or whatnot, but, you know, in that process of being with nature with a specific intention and then just letting the, letting the information come through, letting the wisdom come through that, that is there and just making the space and the time and feeling like, you know, it's, it's, it's there for us. If and when we are ready, and and when it is needed, and and that's just always so remarkable to me.
1: Yeah, and I guess a, a big part of that too is letting go of addictive behaviors that prevent you from that, for prevent you from doing what's most important. You know, too much time on social media. <laughs> yeah, so true. <laughs> I guess-
0: yeah, I, I know. Yourself. I think we all we all struggle with it to to a certain extent, especially in the in the depths of winter, you know, here in Montana. Under <laughs> I was Montana. telling my office mate this morning that I went for a walk, but there the ice is so thick that even with the cleats on my shoes, I'm like slowly shuffling along. Uh, you're not going so dancing a, on that. <laughs> yeah, it's an exercise <laughs> <Yep>. in meditation <laughs> to even go for a walk in the in the midwinter right. months, but yeah yeah such so so good for us to at least get out and get some get some fresh air in in this time of year and and even so the the wisdom is there and and will flow in so well thank you, thank you so much for your time and your knowledge and your wisdom and and sharing this with us. Could you let us know where uh, where people can find you, get connected with you? Where in the world, the interwebs,
1: are you? (laughs) Yeah, okay. Well, I have the SuppressHistories.net. That's the SuppressHistories website. And as I was mentioning, that's now a nonprofit. So, uh, I mean, I'm still the contact for it. So I guess that's one way you can reach me. But um, I have also another, really, I'm on Facebook a lot. So there's the SuppressHistories archives page on there. You can reach me through that. And I have another site, SourceMemory.net, that is really going to be my more of my uh, for-profit. I'm doing webcasts to, uh, on different subjects, live visual webcasts. And so that that's what that site is for, my blog and my podcast and different things. And then there's my publishing site, theletta.net, and that's where my book and posters and DVDs live.
0: Wonderful. Well, I will add all of those to the show notes so that people can uh, find you and definitely see some of these visual Images, uh, as you mentioned, that are that are so remarkable and and I think healing to us as women, as you say, to uh, see some of these things that we didn't see in in our education system growing up and and didn't have the opportunity to you know learn about ourselves and and our own lineage. So thank you for the work that you do and uh, for all that you share, and thank you for being here. Well, thank you for inviting me.